If you can open with me to 1 John chapter 5, 1 John 5, and welcome to week 9 of a 10-week series. So we have two weeks left of a series that we are calling Unshakable, where we have been walking through uh, the letter of 1 John, a letter that is all about us having assurance of our faith, meaning that John, through the Holy Spirit, wants us to know that we know that we know that we have eternal life, so therefore... John gives us a few tests that we can test ourselves in order to examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith. It's important for us to know that. And when we think about this letter, tradition has it that the Apostle John most likely left Jerusalem right before it was destroyed in A.D. 70. He was later exiled on this island called Patmos. We read about that in Revelation 1, 9. Patmos wasn't just a luxury island, so he wasn't exiled um, to the Bahamas. Um, he was exiled to a prison um, island um, that was just a rock quarry where prisoners would break up rocks, take it to ships, and that's what he was a part of. But he most likely wrote these three letters, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, while he was in Ephesus, um, probably after he wrote the Gospel of John, but right before he wrote Revelation, sometime between A.D. 90, A.D. 95. And while it is unknown who um, these three letters, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, were written to, many people believe that they were written to the seven churches um, of Asia Minor, meaning the same churches that, were, uh, that received the book of Revelation, um, who John, um, through Jesus, wrote Revelation to, meaning just as the book of Revelation is written to certain churches, yet to the church of all ages, so this book is written to individual churches, yet also us. Um, because we need to have an unshakable assurance of our faith. And let me just say this. Personally, I have never met a Christian who has lost their salvation. The reason I haven't, because I don't believe it's possible. I believe, according to the Word of God, that if God saves you, if, he, if you could lose your salvation, then there's something greater than His power to save you. So if there's something greater than His power to save you, then He does not have all power. But because He does have all power, He is able to save you, and He is able to keep you. And I believe that. So therefore, I've never met a, a um, Christian who has lost their salvation, but I have met many, many people who profess to be Christians, yet they have no love for the church and they have um, no evidence of fruit in their lives at all. And I think about what 1 John 2.19 says. John says the reason they're not with us is because they were never part of us, because if they were part of us, they'd still be right here with us. And then on another side, I've unfortunately met plenty of people in the church People just like you and me who have struggled with assurance of salvation. People have come to me saying, I, I can't get assurance. And let me just say this. That happens and is manifested in many different ways. But the common denominator for the person struggling with assurance of their salvation is that somehow, somewhere along the way, they have stopped trusting Christ alone for their salvation and they have begun to trust something else. For many, it is a prayer. So I prayed a prayer, and then Satan begins to attack. Well, did you mean it? Did you pray it in faith? Did you do this? So you're thinking, well, I don't know, so let me pray it again. Let me do this. Let me... And Satan gets your mind on that, where you have placed that as your source of salvation instead of Christ alone. Therefore, you don't have assurance. Others, it's your works. Well, I'm not doing enough. I'm not doing what I used to do. I'm not doing these things, so is it enough? Others is church membership. Some is family Things, and you begin to place those things as the foundation of your salvation, and therefore you lose your assurance. 
Yet scripture tells us when we place our complete confidence and trust in Christ alone for salvation, meaning when we trust him as Savior and Lord, we are eternally saved and we are brought into the family of God forever. It's what the Bible tells us. And then in continually trusting him, as we trust him day by day, we are provided with the daily assurance that we are in need of. So this is the picture of how our faith works itself out on a day-to-day basis. And just think about what we're a part of. Just think about what that means for us. I want to begin by just thinking about our calling. And when I say our calling, I mean what we are called in Scripture. In the New Testament, there are over 175 names, descriptive titles, and figures of speech referring to us as Christians. Um, that apply both on an individual basis and on a a group basis, a corporate basis. There are so many wonderful titles in the New Testament by which we describe ourselves as believers in Christ. Let me just give you a few. We are children of God, children of the highest, children of light, children of the day, children of obedience, children of promise, and children of Abraham. We are believers, blessed of the Father, born again, the faithful, sheep, Saints of God, holy ones, soldiers, witnesses, stewards, reconciled, regenerated, and fellow citizens. We are lights in the world. We are salt of the earth. We are ambassadors of Christ, ministers, servants of God, servants of righteousness. We are disciples and heirs, people of God, partakers of Christ, prisoners of Christ, elect of God and chosen. We are kings and priests unto God, royal priesthood, pillars in the temple of God, called of Christ, and living stones. We are branches in the vine, members of the body of Christ, living stones by which the temple of God is built, epistles, living letters, temples, and we are beloved. All of, praise the Lord indeed, all of these terms Hey, one, one person gets it, and I'm okay with that. The rest of you, maybe one day, you will get the fact of what God saved us and brought us into. It is more than we could ever imagine. It's more than one word could ever define. In a sense, it takes more than 175 terms to express the fullness of what God has brought us into. It is meant to blow our minds that if you think you can define your salvation or your God on a bumper sticker, you aren't um, talking about this God or the salvation he's given you. It is way too good for that. But there is another title that oftentimes is not associated with names or um, with, with us as believers, but it's a title given very clearly in Scripture. And that title is, or that name is, Overcomer. And that is what we're going to see today in the book of 1 John. I want to, before we jump in or dive into that, I want to place two quotes before you today. And to be honest with you, these quotes did not make me feel like an overcomer. They made me feel like a loser. And I figure if i got to feel like a loser, I'm going to take you with me. So here, here's where we go. In the words of Watchman Nee, listen to what he says. Overcoming sin, blessed though it surely is, is but the bare minimum of a believer's experience. There is nothing astonishing in it. Not to overcome sin is what ought to astonish us. Just get this. This brother saying, you talk about overcoming sin. You're supposed to overcome sin. How are you rejoicing in that? I'm like, man, I can't even get that right. 
I can't even get that right on a daily basis. Man, how I struggle in that way. And then the Puritan Matthew Henry says, it's more to the honor of a Christian by faith to overcome the world than by monastical vows to retreat from the world. More for the honor of Christ to serve him in the city than to serve him in the cell. Just think about this. According to Scripture, we are overcomers or conquerors of Satan. We read that in Revelation 12, 11. We read it in James. We resist him and we watch him flee from us. We are overcomers of sin. In Romans 6, it says that we are dead in sin, but we are alive to Christ. We are overcomers of death. 1 Corinthians 15 makes it very, very clear that that death has been defeated and conquered in Christ. And as we're going to see this morning, we are overcomers of this world. God has made us overcomers in and through Christ. Hear this, because there is so much for us to overcome. There is so much in this life that we must overcome. Does anybody, can anybody relate to that this morning? You have things in your life that you are called to overcome, yet there is guaranteed victory when we partner with Christ and receive His power that is freely given to us through the cross. Overcoming our challenges um, doesn't come from us striving in our own strength, but from us submitting or surrendering to the strength of Christ. This is the picture here. Think about John 16, 33. Jesus said, hear this, the words of Jesus. If you don't believe me, look them up. John 16, 33. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. And guess what? We go through trouble comes in our lives and we look up to God like, Really? Really, I, I can just sometimes vision God saying, have you read what I've said? I told you, you would have trouble. I told you, don't look at me like you're stupid. Uh, I told you that was going to happen. But then Jesus said, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Understand what that means for us. Jesus has overcome the world. He is overcoming the world. He will forever and always overcome the world. So regardless of what you are facing today, hold fast to that knowledge by faith. Jesus has already overcome and he will give you the victory that you need to overcome whatever it is that he is allowing to enter into your life. That's how good he is. That's how good he is to all of us. So what I want us to do is I want us to turn to the word now and see the name and description that John, through the Holy Spirit, gives to all believers that we are indeed overcomers. If you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor God's word. We're going to read 1 John 5, verses 1 through 5 together. And it begins this way. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Let us pray together. Father, we come before you and Lord, we want to believe what you through your word um, have and Lord, what you are declaring over our lives. That we are not helpless victims. God, we are overcomers because Jesus, our Savior, has overcome. 
God, I pray today that that truth, Lord, would resonate in every heart in this room. Maybe right now as the battle is raging or that that would resonate in our hearts because a battle's coming. Lord, help us not to waste your word because you don't waste a word of it. You don't waste one word, Father. Help us not to do that, Lord. Help us to, to dig in, God, to draw near, to seek you. And, Lord, you will make yourself known. Speak, O oh God, for we are listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And you may be seated. So on June 23rd, 1940, get this, as the 20th of 22 children, let me say that again, as the 20th of 22 children, Wilma Rudolph was born in St. Bethlehem, Tennessee. At the age of four, Rudolph contracted a polio and as a result suffered from um, infantile paralysis. She recovered, but her leg and foot had become so badly twisted that it required her to wear a brace on her leg until she was nine years old and then an orthopedic shoe on her foot for another two years. Over that time, she had to regularly travel significant distances um, to obtain painful treatments at a hospital in Nashville. At the age of 11, Rudolph could finally walk without braces or special shoes, but only a, a year later, she once again um, had a bout of polio and scarlet fever. Think about this. How does a young girl, 12 years old, deal with such incredible setbacks? must have been so difficult for Rudolph to carry on and to even pursue a normal life. Let me say that, let me just kind of lay this before you. She did far more than that. Um, after being discovered by Tennessee State's legendary coach, Ed Temple, Rudolph went on to capture the bronze medal in the 4 by 100 meter at the 1956 Olympics as, um, at the age of 16 years old. And then four years later, she won three gold medals at the 1960 Olympics in Rome. Rudolph was a woman who would not be overcome by adversity. In fact, we would call her an overcomer. That she overcame. And this is a perfect illustration because the root word for both overcome and victory in the original New Testament Greek is the word Nikkei. Nikkei is where we get the sports brand Nike. So I didn't know Jesus wore Nikes, but apparently he did. So we'll just uh, add that into something else we didn't know. Yet when you read this word, Nikkei, picture an athlete who is not just crossing the finish line, but triumphantly crossing the finish line. Picture a football player who is scoring the winning touchdown. Picture a baseball player who is hitting the game-winning home run. This is the biblical description of the Christian life. The biblical description of the Christian life is not the person who is um, crawling to get to the end, but the one who is overcoming and pursuing with their arms up an in ab absolute victory. We are, according to the word of God, victors. Through faith in Christ, we have victory over sin. If you are facing a huge spiritual battle right now, envision yourself right this moment crossing the finish line with your arms up because according to the word of God, that is what God has for you. That's what he has in store for you, for you to cross the finish line with your arms up. In fact, Jesus has made that possible. How do I know that? Because you have his power in you. He abides in you. And here's a sad reality. When it comes to our spiritual lives, there are some people who feel like 
ultimate failure is just inevitable. So I failed, you're going to fail. If you're excited about your Christian walk, just wait, you'll get over it. And we live that way, but that's not how John described our Christian life. In fact, in verse 4, John says, everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Listen, brothers and sisters, we're going to have many ups and downs in this life. And let me even put it a step further. There's going to be battles where you and I are going to lose. We're going to lose battles. We're going to have a battle a day, and we're going to, we're going to lose battles. But praise God, because of Jesus, we will not lose the war. He has won the war for us. Therefore, when we lose Those battles, we rest on his perfection. We rest on his power. We rest on a victory that will always be his. And we rest on that. So what I want to do this morning is I want us to unpack three truths related to us overcoming the world. And I want to encourage you today, regardless of where you find yourself, to let the word of truth, let the voice of truth hover over your lives and get into your life and stop believing the voice of the enemy who tells you you're defeated. Stop believing that. So number one, we overcome the world by faith. We overcome the world by faith. Look at verse one. It says this, everyone, that means no one is excluded, who believes. That doesn't just mean a one-time belief. That means continuing to believe over and over and over again. So everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Now look at verse five. Who is it that overcomes? That is a continual word. You don't just overcome once. You continue to overcome the world except the one who believes, again, a continual belief that Jesus is the Son of God. So in verse 1, we believe that Jesus is the Christ. In verse 5, we believe that He is the Son of God. And understand this. We are not saved from our sin, and we are not reconciled to God through faith in general. Let me say it again. We're not saved by our faith and reconciled to God by faith in general. Just like you're not saved from falling off a a cliff by just reaching out and grabbing something in general. The, The picture is there must be an object that we grab. And according to the gospel, that object is Jesus Christ. This is the picture of the gospel. We grab to him. You don't just grab. Again, one of my pet peeves, I hear people say, just have faith. And I'm like, faith in what? Most people say, just have faith in yourself. Faith in myself isn't going to get me or you anywhere. I mean, I have enough faith in myself to realize I can do nothing and I mess it up. And if you don't believe me, ask my wife. She'll let you know very clearly. Can I get an amen? Amen. No, from her, not from y'all. From her. (laughs) Joe, you're not helping, Joe. (laughs) So just think about this picture. Imagine yourself. And I want to get serious here. Imagine yourself in prison on death row for a crime that you did commit. Now, we like doing the other way around, a crime I did not commit. But imagine yourself in prison on death row for a crime you did commit. You're just waiting to be walked down that lonely hall to be justly executed. That's the the natural state of every human being since Adam. Every single one of us. Our problem is that God is holy, He is just, and therefore He must punish sin. 
And what we desperately need is to have our sentence changed, to have the prison doors open, and for us to be able to walk freely out of the prison without fear of anyone coming and arresting us again to bring us back. And the gospel is the good news that Jesus, who is the eternal Son of God, came to earth as a man to be our perfect substitute for sinners. Follow with me here. As our substitute, Jesus lived the perfectly righteous life that we cannot or could not live. He willingly died um, the death that we deserve on a cross. And three days later, after being um, dead and buried, he rose from death to life. Why did he do all of that? So that for those who trust in him, for all who trust in him, we will be counted righteous because of his righteousness. For all who trust in him, we will be forgiven because of the debt he paid on the cross. For all who trust in him, we will conquer death because he has conquered death. Listen, saving faith is not sitting in a jail cell hoping without hope that the doors are going to open and you're going to be able to walk out without consequences. Saving faith is trusting what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross and through your trust in Christ as Savior and Lord, the doors of your jail cell opens and you are able to walk in new life without consequence. And what does that mean without consequence? It means this. According to Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I will never be condemned for my sin because Jesus was condemned for me. I'll never have to pay for my sin because Jesus paid for my sin for me. And his righteousness and his sacrifice will count for you and for me. Get this, forever. Forever. It will count for us forever and ever. This is the picture of what saving faith is. It's receiving Christ for who he is. He is the ground of our hope. He is the foundation of all that we believe in. It is his righteousness. It is his perfection. It is his love which ultimately count before the Father and not any of our own. Faith in Christ receives Jesus, not ourselves, as the substitute, as our righteousness, as our perfection, as the one who has perfect love for us. Faith sees that Jesus is better. And that makes a huge difference because when we think about overcoming the world, we must also think about overcoming the desires of the world. And what the desires of the world do is the desires of the world tell us that its desires are more desirable than Jesus. But when our eyes of faith are open to him, we realize that he is better and he will always be better. And that is faith. That is what faith is. Don't say you have faith in Christ if you think the world is better. Don't do it. Youth, don't, think, don't say you have faith in Christ if you think sex outside of marriage is better or drugs or anything else that the world is telling you is better. Don't, the picture is this. We have faith and in having faith, adults, don't say um, I have faith if we aren't pointing our children to Jesus in everything that we do. I mean, I get myself in trouble with Misty and, and oftentimes with the kids because when they say something, I will call them out and I will bring them back to the word of God and I will say, that sounds great what you're saying, but here's what the Bible says. And we must, parents, we've got to do that. And the reason we do that is because Jesus is better. Amen. He's better. He's better than anything that the world will offer to us. So therefore, we walk away from that because he's better. We overcome the world by faith. 
Didn't get much amens for that one, but we'll just keep going on. I'm, I'm preaching way better than you're amening, as a matter of fact. So we'll just keep going on. So number two, we overcome the world in love. We overcome the world in love. And we've talked a lot about loving God and loving others, so we're going to make this very short and very sweet. We've talked about imagining a world where people were skeptical of what we believe, but yet they were envious of how well um, we treated one another. Where unbelievers were so eager to hire, to work for, to work with, to live next door to Christians because of how we loved one another. In fact, when people think about the church and think about those of us inside the church, what should come to mind is that we love God and that we love others. What shouldn't come to mind, the first thing shouldn't be how judgmental we are or how hypocritical we are. I... I have people, and even people outside the church, let me tell you, let me tell you a, a great secret, and it's not a secret, it's a way to victory. When somebody who's not a Christian calls you out on being a hypocrite, instead of, start, instead of um, trying to justify yourself or point to somebody else, look at them and say, you know what, you're right. You're right. Forgive me. And can I pray and ask God to forgive me right now? you know what that will do? That will do way more in the long term for their respect towards you than trying to justify yourself in the eyes of the world. When your kids call you out, instead of just sitting in the room, take time to understand what they're saying might be true. You can have a, you can have a conversation later on about the appropriate time and those kind of things, but listen, there's never a wrong time to confess your sin. There's never a wrong time to say, I blew it and I messed up. Up. May we understand that reality. Just listen to the words of John. When it thinks about love, John says, second half of verse 1, everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Verse uh, 2, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God. Verse 3, for this is the love of God. So without the love of God, even the good things that we do have no value in his eyes. If you don't believe that, read 1 Corinthians 13. Yet according to verse 2, something beautiful happens. The love that God has for us and gives to us is multidimensional. What that means is this. So God pours his love on us. The first thing we do with the love that God has poured on us is we, first of all, we love him. So we love him. Why? Because he what? First, first, so he pours love on us. We first love him. Then more love is poured on us. And then multidimensional, even better. We then pour that love not just on a few people, but on all those who are born of God. That's what it tells us in the scripture. All, we love all those who are born of God. Is that true of you? Are you loving the whole body? Are you loving in that way? Here's what I know. If you love God, if you really love God, you long more than anything else to be in his presence to worship him, to hear him speak, to praise his name. And if you love people, you will long to be with them, to encourage them, to worship with them, to live life with them. The point is, we're not just loving the Lord only, we're loving the family. And one of the things that came to my mind during our time in India is why we struggle so much to love the family of God here in the U.S., as opposed to our brothers and sisters and their love for each other, especially in India where we just were. And here's what came to my mind. Every single one of us in this room, we have a circle. Some of us is our family. That is our circle. Some of us is friends that have been brought in that is our family. It, that family, that circle is our insulation. 
That circle is our comfort. That circle is where we find what we need, where we look to in times of difficulty. And that circle is it. The problem with that circle is we don't let many people from outside into that circle. And because we have that circle, we're not thinking about those outside of our circle. And then we think about brothers and sisters in in India. And here's a story we hear over and over again. They say this, I came to Christ, I lost my family. My family disowned me. Now some of them, praise God, have testimonies that now their family has come to Christ, but my family disowned me. And here's the reality. All I had were these brothers and sisters who took me into their family. And because of that, what we're seeing over there is the family of God, brothers and sisters, their roots are growing so deep together. And because they were brought in when they had no family, they're willingly bringing other people in. And here's what scares me. We're so busy over here, including myself, taking our little circle, and we're building our roots down so deep with our little circle, while the whole family of God, we're growing wide as can be, but we have zero root. We have zero roots whatsoever. You know, I I just think about that reality, and it breaks my heart because God has more for us than that. You know, many years ago, we changed our, the name Sunday School to Life Groups, and some people just pitched a fit about it. But the answer is this. Listen, what does Sunday School mean? What, what, what's that picture that Sunday School gives you? That you do something once a week. So Sunday School is something I do on when? On Sunday. So you come one day a week, hang out with the people of God, and then there you go. We changed the name to Life Groups because what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to live life together. Live life Together, meaning we're supposed to need each other, depend on each other, help meet other people's needs and be that voice where I cannot wait to see you and encourage you, call you and text you, especially if something is going on in your life. If I say I'm going to pray for you, I'm going to do it. We need that in our lives more than we know. So much more than we know. May each one of us in a fresh and new way give ourselves to loving God and loving others. So we overcome the world in love. And then lastly, we overcome the world through obedience. We overcome the world through obedience, through obedience before dawn. So before the sun ever comes up at the boundary line between Morocco and Melilla, a a group of women known as mule ladies. I'll explain that in just a second. They line up to wait the opening of the border. Melilla is a Spanish port city. And anything that's carried over from Spain into Morocco is considered luggage, therefore is duty-free. So the women who live in the adjoining Moroccan town earn money by carrying loads of these um, luggage across the border up the hill. Many of them carry burdens the size, get this, the size of an average washing machine that weighs 150 to 175 pounds. And they're not just walking a few feet, they're walking miles. The returns on this physically debilitating task are minimal. They are literally breaking their bodies in order to live. Mule ladies. And why do I say that? Why do I even mention that? I mention it because of this. For many of us in this room, if we are not careful, our obedience to God becomes like that. It becomes a hard burden that we are carrying. We don't see... um, 
with minimal um, returns on our investment. We feel like we're just breaking ourselves. Yet that is not what God intended. In fact, look at what it says in Scripture. Verse 2, it says, when we obey His commandments. So it's not if we, when we obey His commands. Verse 3, hear this. This is key. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. So we love God by obeying God. We obey God because we love Him. Love and obedience go together in a way that we sometimes miss. In fact, what I mean by that is many Christians think of obedience as in a negative way, as a, as a duty. For example, and this is going to shock you, my kids don't often or don't always think of obedience positively. I know that's, that's shocking to you because pastors are supposed to have perfect kids, but my, my kids don't always think of obedience in a positive manner. They don't always smile in obedience. My kids don't always write songs um, and, and rejoicing over the rules that me and Misty give to them. Maybe your children do. Maybe your children write songs about how great your rules are. Here's what I know. Our children don't do that. But God's children do. Amen. God's children do. How do I know that? Psalm 119. Psalm 119, 176 verses. And 169 of those 176 verses, David is saying this. Oh God, your commands are amazing your precepts are out of this world your rules i can't get enough of them and over and over again he's just talking and singing about how amazing god's rules and commands are god has designed obedience to his commands to be the overflow of our relationship with him meaning when we read those words his commands are not burdensome if you get to a place where doing what god has commanded you is a burden Step back and say, I'm not loving God the way I should. If you love God the way you should, doing what he's asked you to do will not be a burden. It won't be a burden. And that means, think about this, God's commands will not be a burden. God's commands would be a burden if one or two things were true. If we could not do what God asked us to do, that would be a burden, right? If we ask our kids to do things they cannot do, we would be setting them up for failure. So if God was asking us to do something that we could not do, that would be burdensome. The second way it would be burdensome is if God is asking us to do things that we just don't want to do. So if we don't want to do God's commands, then his commands become burdensome. Yet according to the word of God, not only have we been empowered to obey God, we actually, because of his spirit in us, find pleasure in obeying God. So many Christians view obeying God like a duty they have to keep. So I have to do this. I have to do this. And let me tell you, let me stop you right there. That is not Christianity. That's religion. That's religion. If you think I've got to do this for God to love me, I've got to do this for this to happen, I've got to do this for this to happen, you are in a religious circle. And there is no blessing. There is no peace. There is no joy in that. But because God loves me, because every command he gives me is because he loves me, I do what he calls me to do because he, he empowers me to do it, and I do it not because I have to, but because I get to. I get to. I get to obey him. I get to serve him. I'm allowed to bring glory and honor to his name. Is that a description of our lives? Are we doing things not out of duty, but out of delight? Because we love him, because he loves us. Let me end this way, and we've got a little bit of work to do, but just follow with me here. John um, isn't finished with the subject of overcoming in this book. Look over, um, flip over to Revelation chapter 2. In Revelation chapter 2, in the book of Revelation, 
Jesus begins to speak to the seven churches in Asia Minor. And John writes it down, and something amazing happens. The way every single small letter to every, seven, to every single church, of the seven churches, how they all end. And it's a beautiful way how they end. Look at verse 7 of chapter 2 to the church of Ephesus. Jesus says this, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says of the churches. To the one who conquers, or the word there is overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Look at uh, verse 11 of chapter 2, the church at Smyrna. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says of the churches. The one who conquers or overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Look at verse 17 to the church at Pergamum. He says this, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says of the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Look at verse 26, beginning at verse 26, to the church at Thyatira. Jesus says this, The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and as with earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as myself have received authority from my Father. So that's speaking, of course, of the millennial kingdom. And then he says in verse 28, I will give him the morning star. Stop for a second. Let me ask you a question. Who is, according to the Bible, according to Revelation, who is the bright morning star? So what do we get for overcoming? We get him. Let's keep going. Chapter 3, verse 5. To the church at Sardis, Jesus says this. Are you getting something here? The one who conquers or overcomes will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. Get this. Jesus says, I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Imagine Jesus taking you and saying, Father, this is Micah and he is mine and therefore he is yours. Imagine him saying that because the Bible says he will. Then look with me at uh, verse 12 to the church at Philadelphia. Jesus says this to the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, and the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. What does that mean? For some of you, the first tattoo you'll ever get will be in heaven, where God will write his name on you. That didn't get a great response in, in the first service. They were like, never! And I was like, oh, Yes! It's going to happen whether you like it or not. You will get a tattoo and you won't be able to do a thing about it. And what that tattoo will show you is that you are his and you'll be his forever. You'll be his forever and ever. Some of you are going, does it really say that? It says it. And then verse 21 of chapter 3, the one who conquers or overcomes, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Brothers and sisters, we don't just overcome and it's good here. We overcome and it's going to be good for us forever and ever and ever. Let me end this way. I once heard of a captain of a ship who was describing what it was like to go through a storm. And he described the ship in the midst of waves that were mounting on every side with the wind blowing hard and the rain not letting up. 
He describes the ship being a helpless victim or seems like a helpless victim in the storm, caught up in the powers of the, the elements raging on every side. And it seemed like this ship was doomed. And then the captain said this. Listen to these words. I stood there on the bridge of the ship and I grasped the railing. I felt the throbbing of the engine deep down inside the hole. The storm, the wind, and the waves seem to be saying to the ship, you cannot come, you cannot come, you will not make it. But I heard the answering throb of the engine saying, yes, we shall, yes, we shall, yes, we shall. And he said this, and so we did. Brothers and sisters, I don't know what you're facing today. I don't know what storms and difficulties are surrounding you or you're right in the middle of, but you have something better than a boat engine within you. You have the Holy Spirit of God. And because you have the Holy Spirit of God, regardless of what the storms are saying, the storms and the lie of the enemy is telling you, you can't, you won't, you'll never make it. And yet you have one inside of you who's saying, but I can and I will. And I will take you to where you need to be. And we might be thinking, well, I want to go there. And the Holy Spirit's going, well, that's not where you're going. Because that's not where I need you. But I'm taking you to exactly where you need to be. Brothers and sisters, we will overcome. You will make it. You will make it. You will make it. Let me end this morning by showing you that, that verse again. 1 John 5, 4. And it says this, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And here's how we're going to end our time together as the band comes forward. I want you to stand with me. And we're going to read this verse together. And here's what I believe with all my heart. I believe that when John wrote these words, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that John meant them. Let me say it again. I believe that John meant them. So what I want us to do is I want us to recite this verse together and get this. I want us to mean it. I want us to mean what we're saying. When we say we are overcomers, let's mean it because God has declared that we are. Stop believing um, the lies of the enemy and stop telling yourself lies. Brothers and sisters, guess who lies to yourself more than anybody? You do. You are the greatest liar to yourself. I'm not talking about positive confessions and those, but we tell our things uh, lies that are, or tell ourselves lies that are contrary to this book. And we need to begin to say, no, that's a lie, and this is what the Word of God says. So let's say this together and let's mean it. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you. And Lord, the reality of many lives in this room is that there are some in this room that right now, Lord, they're in the storm. They're in a battle. And Lord, they need to know more than anything else, God, that they're going to make it. And Lord, by your word and spirit today, may they hear these words, Lord, they will make it. Lord, there's others in this room, Lord, the storm's coming. We don't even know how. We don't even know what that looks like, God. We don't even know it's us, but it's coming. And Lord, help us, God, to hold to the fact in the midst of every storm that because you live in us, we're going to make it. You will accomplish your purposes. Your word says, God, what you have started, you will 
finished in us. Help us to believe that, God. Finish this time, Lord, in a way that brings glory to yourself. Well, I pray today there will be some in this room that would stop striving in their own strength and would surrender to the strength, God, that you alone give. That some today, Lord, would repent and ask, confess, Lord, just negative lies that they speak over their own lives. And begin to confess your truth over their lives. Finish this time in Jesus' name. Amen.